good. Uh, you can join me in the scriptures in Galatians, the book of the Bible we've been going through the last, really, several months with an extended break in the middle of it because of the pandemic. Uh, we're going to be in that text here just in a moment that Caleb read for us uh, several minutes ago. Uh, Galatians chapter 4, verses 21 through 25. That's where we're going to be uh, looking at this morning as we continue our way through this wonderful book of the Bible. If you were here a few Sundays ago on Father's Day, it was really timely. I got to preach about uh, the fatherhood of God and how he has, even before time, set his heart upon us and done all the work necessary to adopt us. Today we're going to talk a little bit of something different because in this section Paul talks more about mothers in this text. If you listened along or if you just move your eyes over this text, you see that he talks a lot about mothers. And I wanted to start by mentioning the idea of a maternity test. Uh, we're very familiar probably with the idea of paternity tests. Uh, they're unfortunately like really common. There are thousands upon thousands of paternity tests given in our country alone every year uh, to help determine who the father of a child is, whether it's a newborn or someone who is older and just seeking to either confirm or to find out out of curiosity uh, who their biological father is. Those are uh, increasingly common, and they the results of them can be incredibly surprising and kind of disorienting for a person if they find out who their father is or if it's someone different than what they thought. Um, but something that is far less common but can be even more jolting to the system, if you could imagine this, would be to have to do a maternity test. Uh, to have to determine who your mother is, because without getting too much into the, the weeds, uh, it's usually fairly obvious to us who our mother is, because she carried us, she delivered us, almost always there's people around with her when she delivers us, so there's people to confirm it. We know from day one, everybody knows from day one who our, who our mother is. And so then if there's ever need later in life for a maternity test to be given, to find out who a person's mother is, if they find out that that mother is someone different from who they thought, can you imagine the, the shock that that would have to their system uh, to think, who am I? Where, where did I come from? Everything that I thought and just assumed about my life from day one was totally wrong, and people either deceived me or misled me. Uh, a maternity test can be shocking to the heart and to the soul if the results are unexpected. And what we're going to see in today's text is the Apostle Paul uh, forcefully and, and in kind of indirect ways, administering a spiritual maternity test. Uh, he's going to hold out two examples of mothers from the Old Testament and essentially challenge the Galatian believers. And I would hope that the Spirit today can challenge us who are here, us who are listening, uh, to discern who is our spiritual mother amongst these two options. Which one is my spiritual mother? I, I trust that, that God will help us to see that and either teach us to repent of the, the one approach and the one mother we may have or to rejoice if we have the other mother. And so I want to get into this text. It's a little bit thick. I will tell you that up front. I will try to work my way through it quickly because I know even earlier in the day it's still hot. Uh, but it, it is a wonderful text, but it, it, is, uh, it can be difficult to understand. So I want you to start with me in Galatians chapter 4, verse 21. And verse 21 helps us to remember if we haven't been in the book of Galatians to kind of quickly remember what's going on with these churches that the Apostle Paul was writing to. He starts by saying, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? 
And so what was happening in these churches, the guy who wrote this letter, Paul, was actually the man, humanly speaking, who had started these churches. He had taken the good news of Jesus to them. He had told them about Jesus, and they had placed their faith in Jesus. Uh, But these were not Jewish people. They were Gentile people. And after Paul left, after he went on to do further missionary work, there were Jewish teachers who came into the region of Galatia and started to tell these people that are the very recipients of this letter, they had started to tell them, you need to follow the Old Testament law. Believing in Jesus, what Paul told you to do, that's not enough. Like, that's essential, but it's not enough. You guys need to come under the law. That's what he's saying. These people are starting to desire to do. They're desiring to go under the law. And Paul in this letter over and over and over again in different ways is telling them, don't do that. Do not go back under the law. Don't start going under the law. You don't need to do that. It's dangerous to do that. Don't do it. And what he says in verse 21 is he wants them to not just be so quick to do the law, practice the law, that they're not actually listening to it. Because what he's reminding them is the law wasn't just a set of rules. Uh, You can read through and find rules like in Exodus and Leviticus and even in Deuteronomy. You can find there's tons of them there in the Old Testament. But what he's wanting to remind them of is those are embedded in a bigger story. There was actually people involved and God interacting with people in certain ways. And so he's wanting them not to just to be so quick like our human instinct, just tell me what to do. Tell me what laws I need to follow. But he wants them to remember the story. He wants them to remember the characters and how God interacted with them, what they did well, what they didn't do well. And he's going to point them to, I would call this in verse 22, the tale of two sons, a story back in the Old Testament. In verse 22, he, he references the two sons of Abraham. Abraham was an extremely important man in the Jewish faith and even to these early uh, churchgoers because he was the one that God had given a promise to. And what had happened, I'll just, in verse 22 is a summary of about a dozen chapters in the book of Genesis. So if you're not familiar with this story of these two sons of Abraham, I want to tell it to you real quick, because Paul's assuming that the people knew it, and then he's going to apply it forward. So if you don't know this story, I'll recap it really quick, and then you could go back and read it yourself later. It's from Genesis 12 to chapter 21, and even then carries beyond that. But what happened back in the Old Testament that he wants them to listen to was this. God had come to a man named Abraham. This is before the nation of Israel even existed, long before that. Uh, God had come to a man named Abraham, and he made him a promise. This was a 75-year-old man initially when God came to him who has no children of his own. And God tells this 75-year-old man that he will give him a son. And that someday that son will grow into a nation, and someday that nation will become a blessing to all nations. So he says that I'm going to bless all the nations through you, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And he believes him. But 10 years go by, and still no child has been given by God. And so get, Abraham and his wife Sarah, they're getting older, they're getting older month by month. As no child comes, they're probably more and more perplexed. And what they do is they concocted their own plan to try to bring about a son. And since Sarah is seemingly not able to conceive, they, what they decide to do is they have Abraham marry a woman, you'll see her name referenced here in a moment, one of their servants named Hagar. He takes her to be his second wife, and then she conceives and has a son. And they, that son Abraham names Ishmael. And that son, though, is not the one that God promised. It's a son of Abraham, but it's not the one that God had promised. And so God makes them wait again. 
God has them wait now 12 years, 13 additional years, and still no son has been given, uh, as God said he would. Ishmael is the only son of Abraham. And at long last, when Abraham is almost 100 years old, so if you can imagine that, when he's almost 100 years old, and his wife Sarah is not far behind, she's no spring chicken herself, she is not far behind, she's getting older and older and older, and no child of her own, God finally gives them the son of promise. He gives them a son uh, within the womb of Sarah that she conceives and carries and delivers, and they name him Isaac. Isaac is the one, the son of promise, that eventually has descendants who become the nation of Israel. That was not Ishmael, it's that second son, Isaac, who is the son of promise. And as you can imagine, when those sons are born, there's one who's almost a teenager, and then there's one who's an infant. There's conflict between them and their moms and Abraham, and what ends up happening is that Ishmael, that first son, and his mother, Hagar, are sent away. They're treated as slaves. He's not an heir. He's sent away from the household of Abraham. And Isaac, that second son, who was the son of Sarah, is the heir. He becomes the son uh, that that the promise passes down through, that the, the inheritance is given to. And so that's the story he's summarizing in verse 22 by just saying, it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by a slave woman, one by a free woman. That's a real simple way to explain that story. But then in the very next verse, Abraham interprets that story. He, he frames it a certain way that maybe the readers of this letter and maybe us hadn't thought about it before. Because, and this, I would say, is a tale of two strategies. A tale of two strategies. Because how he summarizes it, summarizes that story, he says, but the son of the slave, that's that first son, was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman, that's the second son, Isaac, was born through promise. And so as Abraham is quickly summarizing that story and reminding them to listen to this story, he's essentially saying that story is a a tale of two strategies to try to bring about the blessing of God. The, The first strategy that happened with Abraham and Hagar, that that improvisational plan was a a plan, he says, according to the flesh. It was them trying by human effort to bring about the blessing of God. Them thinking, you know what, we we don't want to keep waiting on God. Maybe if we just try something different, maybe if we're innovative, maybe if we think outside of the box, maybe if we just try harder and do something different, the blessing of God will come. But that second son, he says, was born by a different strategy. He was born through promise. That strategy was very simple. It was just a matter of waiting, a matter of receiving what God would eventually give, not a matter of human effort, human exertion, human creativity, human innovation. It was just a matter of trusting God and waiting Him to do what only He could do. And that is why I think God had them wait as long as they did. That's why God had Abraham and Sarah wait till he was almost 100 and she was in her 90s was so that they would undeniably have to acknowledge this son came from the hand of God. The reason that she could hold Isaac in her arms isn't because they came up with some great idea, but it's because God was kind to them. And because God, by his own power, provided a son for them, that strategy was a matter simply of trusting and waiting and then God being the actor. God being the provider of blessing, not us being the ones who manufacture a blessing like they tried to do with uh, Hagar and with the son that came from her of Ishmael. And so 
Paul frames the story as a tale of two sons and a tale of two strategies. One, that there's this fleshly effort to try to gain the blessing of God by the things we do. And then there's one where the blessing of God comes just by promise and us receiving it by no work of our own. God giving his blessing to us. And so then Paul, all that to say, he's assumed that story that they know it, and then he's going to apply it to their day and uh, apply it to us, I would say, by extension. Because as you see in verses 24 down through maybe about verse 27, I would call this a tale of two mothers. What Paul's going to do is he's going to use those two ladies, uh, Sarah and Hagar, and he's going to use them as uh, symbols. He's going to use them as kind of metaphorical examples of sorts to say uh, what type of children continued to come from them. Not biological children that descended from them, but what kind of spiritual children descended from those two ladies. One down this path of trying to, according to the flesh, to bring about the blessing of God, and one that's just according to the promise, waiting upon God to do what he would do. And so you can see that it's very thick argumentation that he makes, but I want to try to help you see what he's trying to say. If you look in, in verse 24, he says that these, these can be interpreted, interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. And then the first one he's going to describe is what the descendants of Hagar were like. The people who, as they came along in time, would try to strive according to human effort, according to fleshly effort to bring about the blessing of God. And he, he connects them, those descendants of Hagar, to Mount Sinai. Which, which the Jewish people would have held very proudly and said, that's where God met with us, that's where God gave us the law, that's where he showed his kindness to us and his mercy to us. He ties Hagar to Mount Sinai. And then he says that the present Jerusalem, that as he looks around, as Paul looks around at their world in that day, and Jerusalem had become the, the capital, it had become the headquarters in a sense of the Jewish faith, where they're trying to follow law upon law upon law upon law. He's saying that those people who met at Mount Sinai and God gave the law to, and even to his present day, the people in Jerusalem, the Jews in Jerusalem who were trying to practice the law and get better at practicing the law, he is saying that they are like descendants of Hagar. They may be biologically descendants of Sarah. They may have come from her line and been descendants of her son Isaac. But he's saying spiritually, those Jewish people and even the teachers that were trying to teach these people at Galatia to follow the law, he's saying they are like sons of Hagar. They are enslaved to the law. They're trying by their own efforts, by keeping all these rules and dietary laws and holidays and sacrifices and, and what they say and don't say, trying to follow all these laws. They are trying, these Jewish teachers and Jewish believers in that day were trying to manufacture the blessing of God. They were thinking that the blessing of God, the favor of God came through their effort to please him, their obedience to his law and the things that he had laid out. And that would have been shocking. We talked about shocking maternity tests. For Jewish people to hear Paul say, our mother is Hagar, would have been stunning to them. They would have thought, no way. Like, we are descendants of Sarah. Like, we're born according to promise. And Paul is saying, that may be true biologically. It is not true spiritually. You Jewish folks who are seeking to please God by obeying the law and get his blessing through the law, you are like slaves. You are not heirs. You are not true children of God. You are slaves. You are, are seeking to bring his blessing according to the flesh. It's sort of been shocking to them. But what he's going to say on the flip side is he's going to apply this maternity test to a second group of people who he will call the children of promise. 
And he's saying there's this second group who are spiritually descendants of Sarah, spiritual descendants of her as their mother. And he, he calls them citizens. It's like he doesn't even fully form his thought. Uh, he's getting so excited, it seems like. He says in verse 26, he, he says they are like citizens of the Jerusalem above. They're part of the heavenly city of God. That, that's where they belong. And he implies in it that they are, he says that they are free, that they are not slaves. And, and what he's saying is the people who believe the promises of God and who let him be the giver of blessing, who, who the people who don't depend on their own works to try to, to conjure up the blessing of God, but who just let him give it to them, just humbly receive it with no works of their own, he says that they are the ones who are descendants of Sarah. They are the ones who are truly free. It's not the people who are under the law. It's the people who are receiving the blessing of God purely from the hand of God, not from their own exertions and their own efforts. And what we see, and Paul doesn't necessarily speak even directly about him here, but he does in the rest of this letter, is that the way that that blessing comes to the spiritual descendants of Sarah is through the person of Jesus Christ. What we know to be true, most of us here I think today, is that the way that the blessing of God actually comes to us is not through us becoming more and more obedient to God. It's not by us trying to think up ways to, to gain his blessing, but the way that you can be blessed by God is through the work of Jesus. It's through the work of someone else on your behalf because he lived a life of perfect obedience that you can't and that I can't. And then at the cross, he, he suffered the punishment that should be coming on our heads from God the Father. He suffered it in our place. And then God the Father raised him up from the dead uh, to show that he approved of him, to show that his sacrifice worked. And now what God the Father can do is he can extend his blessing through Jesus to all of us. Not because we're good. Not because we clean ourselves up. Not because we find new Christian laws to follow. But through the work of Jesus that's already been done. So we just sit back like Sarah and Abraham and we receive from God his blessing. We don't do things to gain it. We receive it from his hand through the work of Jesus. And so in verse 27, Paul compares that group of people who receive the blessing of God through Jesus. He talks about them. He quotes Isaiah chapter 54. He talks about them as, as if uh, their mother, Sarah, their spiritual mother who was barren, who had no children for a long time. It's as if her womb has been opened now and now tons and tons of life is coming. More and more children are coming into her spiritual family through faith in Jesus Christ. The one who was barren now has child upon child upon child all over this world and throughout time as people come to faith in Jesus. And so Paul is saying that there's these two spiritual mothers that all of us ultimately will be a child of, one or the other, spiritually speaking. We'll either be a child of Hagar seeking to operate in the flesh to conjure up the blessing of God, or we'll be children of Sarah who wait and receive the blessing of God through the work of someone else, through the work of Jesus. It's quite the maternity test that Paul applies to them. And I want to try to apply it to us in a couple ways today uh, before we, we sing again. Uh, I want to apply this maternity test, this distinction of two types of mothers and two types of families that come from them. First to you specifically, to each of you who can hear me today, I want to ask you, who is your spiritual mother amongst those two options? Because Paul is trying to apply this test to these people who are reading this letter, and I think God would want you to consider today, spiritually speaking, who is my mother? Is, it, is my mother Hagar, or is my mother Sarah? 
Am I a person who, like Hagar and like Abraham with her, is trying to, to measure up, trying to get, uh, do good things, be creative, be hardworking, be diligent to get the blessing of God and get his approval? Or am I a child of Sarah where I am just receiving from God his approval totally outside of my own work? That's an important question for us to think. And I I want you to know who your spiritual mother is. And one way I think you could tell, if that's a hard question for you to wrap your mind around, uh, one way you could tell if you, I think, are a descendant, so to speak, of Hagar, that that way of operating in the flesh would be that I'm guessing if that's you, that this is a common experience for you that you fluctuate day to day, maybe week to week, sometimes maybe like hour to hour between two poles of one feeling deep shame for your sin and then one feeling great pride in your righteousness. That when you do something that you know is wrong, you feel a deep sense of shame and you think there's no way God could be pleased with me right now. No way he is blessing me right now. On the other hand, when you feel like you've done something particularly righteous and you've gotten your act together and you've been obedient in certain ways you want to be obedient, you feel like, man, God must be extra proud of me right now. If that's you and you feel those things in your heart, what that should be a telltale sign to you is you are thinking that the blessing of God's coming from your obedience, that it rises and falls with your obedience level. Uh, that, if that is you, where you're battling between these poles of shame and then arrogance, uh, of despair and then pride, that is a sign to you that you are a child of Hagar, that you're trying to conjure up the blessing of God rather than it, letting it be given to you through the work of Jesus. It is fascinating to me that even Abraham, who is a man of faith, who has already said to believe in God, believe the promises of God, he stooped to this this attempt in the flesh to bring about the blessing of God. And we ought to know we're not above that ourselves. Because we've placed our faith in Jesus doesn't mean we don't face temptations to step back into that mode of, of living like Hagar living like Abraham with Hagar, saying, I need to get the blessing of God back. I need to do something to make him proud of me. I need to do something to move his hand. We must not do that. Paul is warning them over and over again. He even says it in verse 1 of chapter 5. Stand firm. Don't go back into slavery. Don't go back into that mode, that strategy of trying to bring about the blessing of God. Let the blessing of God be given to you through the work of Jesus. You want to be a child of promise who simply receives the blessing of God through the work of Jesus, not a child of Hagar who tries to earn the favor of God through your works. Because if that is you, if if Hagar is your spiritual mother, that is not going to end well for you. Hagar and her son were kicked out of the household. They were not treated as free people. They were not treated as heirs. They were rejected. And the same is true of us. If we continue to act as Hagar's children, just trying to conjure up in the flesh God's blessing, we will be ultimately rejected by him as well. Two other things I want to say real quick, application-wise. I want you to think about your evangelism. As you seek to share the gospel with people, I want you to not just think, who is your mother, but who is their spiritual mother? Because I think sometimes as we tell people about Jesus, we can be tempted to be short-sighted and just be content with getting people to be Christian law followers. That as we talk to people, we start to sense like, oh, they want to do good. They, They want to do right. They want to come to church. They want to read the Bible. They want to pray. They want to do, 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 do these things for God. We can be content with that sometimes and think, okay, the Spirit of God's at work in their heart. But law keeping is not a sign of the presence of the Spirit on its own. What's the truest sign of the presence of the Spirit is if someone believes God's promise. 
that they can be blessed through the work of someone else, that they can be blessed through the work of Jesus. And so we need to make sure when we're talking to our children, when we're talking to our coworkers, when we're talking to our neighbors and lost people around us, that we're not setting, selling them short and just trying to get them to become law keepers, Christian rule followers, but we are holding out the promise of God through Jesus to them, not some contract for them to follow. Uh, we need to make sure that we are clear with them from the get-go. And we ought to have confidence as we share the gospel, uh, be, remembering this, that there are children of the promise out there, that we don't need to look around and think, who is like close to conversion? Who is like doing pretty well? And like, I think they're close to believing. That's not how God works. God's blessing comes only through his work. It's not by people achieving some level of obedience. They're getting closer and they're getting closer and they're getting closer. And I need to find those people who are close to the kingdom and then tell them the good news. We tell everyone the good news, and then God can change the hardest of hearts. He can bring his blessing to anyone because if he can place a child in the womb of a 90-year-old woman, he can change the heart of the hardest-hearted person that you know. And so we need to have confidence and prayerfulness as we tell the gospel. Now, the last thing I want to say application-wise from this text is I want us to think collectively as a church family, not just who is my mother, who is their mother, but I want us to think, spiritually speaking, amongst these two options, who is our mother? Collectively, as a church family, who is our mother? Because I think it's not just individual Christians who can think this way, but that sometimes collective Christians can think this way, where we start to think that the blessing of God is going to come to us by our hard work by us being innovative, by us being creative, by us getting our act together, by us just putting our nose to the ground and doing hard work for God. And if we just work, work, work and do the, all the right things for God, that he's going to bring about his blessing upon our church. He's going to make it grow. He's going to make it abound. He's going to uh, just make things move. And we can collectively start to buy into this fleshly mindset of the human effort. It's what's bringing about the blessing of God. But we must remember collectively that just as salvation comes through the promise to individuals, so does growth of churches. So does this growth of the kingdom comes through God's work, not through our work alone. And so I, I don't want us, and I know our pastors do not want us to become a church that's just always trying to think of the next thing to do, the newest thing to do, the, the coolest fad to do, the, the best strategy. We want to think. We want to be strategic. We want to plan. We're working on things right now of long-term plans. We're in the very beginnings of that, and wheels are turning. We have a meeting next month to try to think about some things we can do to be strategic. But we don't rest the, the success and the growth of our church on those things. We can operate in the flesh and come up with all these wonderful plans, and if we're not humbly submitting those to God, and if we're not telling the promise of the good news of Jesus to our community, it will not succeed. We will not be faithful as a church. We will not grow as a church. We need to make sure as a church that we are living as children of Sarah, that we are not living as children of Hagar, seeking to just manufacture the blessing of God, but that we're prayerful, that we're preaching the same promise that we believe and wait for God to bring the blessing, wait for God to bring the growth. I want to end by just saying this. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. Uh, this maternity test that, that Paul gives here is very important. It, it, it is something he's pointing them back to, to, to help them evaluate the state of their soul, to not just say because they believe in Jesus that uh, they can live however they want. They can live in a way that just operating, trying to bring about the blessing of God. He wants them to on day one and then day 1,000 and day 10,000, rest the weight of their souls upon the promise of God, not upon the goodness of their works. 
And we need to remember that. So if you hear today that your spiritual mother is Hagar and you feel convicted about trying to gain the blessing of God through your own works, I'd call you to repent today of that. To acknowledge before God and even talk with others around you to confess that for him. I'm trying to earn his blessing and confess that to him. Uh, apologize to that, uh, for that to him. And then come and come back to, the, to, to having Sarah as your mother, where you're resting upon the promise of God. Because uh, if you're a, a child of Sarah, if you're a descendant of Sarah who's receiving the blessing of God through Jesus by faith alone, you ought to not repent today, but rejoice today. That God has looked at you, not because you've cleaned yourself up, not because you've done enough good things, but he has looked at you as connected with Jesus, and he's given you his blessing now and forever.